Hola and welcome to the Latino Card. In this episode, we are going to talk to Jose Antonio Vargas. Just to let you know, this was recorded on site at Boise State University. And so uh, we were using a secondary mic. And so please bear with us in the um, audio. It's not as good as it normally is uh, when we record at the Radio Boise studio. And we also are not we also don't have uh, JJ Saldana on this one because he was too busy doing uh, work for his actual job that pays the bills. And so we are going to have uh, Rachel Spacek step in for him. So thank you and uh, thank you for bearing with us. Welcome to the Latino Card. Uh, I am Rebecca De Leon, and today we are recording um, on a remote location at Boise State. I am here with Rachel Spacek. Hello, Rachel. Hi. And we actually have an, a, a super special guest, somebody who I am honestly a little bit starstruck over. Um, we have Jose Antonio Vargas. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He is, um, gosh, so many things. So he is, he wrote a book um, called Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Um, he has a, you you did a, a documentary. Um, yeah, I've done a few documentaries. Yeah, a yes. few documentaries, yes. Um, and he uh, is, is the founder of Define American. So welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> or as I like to say, usually too, especially to, to, to Latin people, um, I'm Filipino Jose or Asian Jose. That's right. Yes. 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 He is our first like guest, I guess, who is not Latinx. Um, but Filipinos and Latino people are like cousins. They're We're your cousins by colonization. Yes, that's yes, right. And yes. so that's why we all have like Spanish names. Um, but for some reason, um, yeah. Filipinos don't put the accents in their Spanish names. Have I told you why? Yes, it's in your book. Oh, yeah, it's in the book. Yes. <laughs> no, that happened in the book because um, when I was done with the book, I had to turn it into the copy editor, the copy chief at the publishing. Uh-huh. And she was like, hey, I think you forgot the accent on, on your name. <laughs> and I was like, no, I didn't because I'm Filipino and we don't put accents on our names. And then, like, a good copy editor, she's like, why not? And I said, I don't know. Filipinos never put accent on their names. And then, is there a reason for that? And I said, you know, it's just our way of rebelling against Spanish colonialism. I love it. Like, that was my, like, stock answer for years and years and years. Yes. And she goes, that's not really a response. Can you go find out for sure? Oh, my gosh. She's she's a good copy editor. Yeah. And so then I found a linguist anthropologist at Stanford University, Jonathan Rosa, who then got back to me and said, yeah, when the Spanish left, you know, when the Americans took over the Philippines from Spain, they went to the Philippines and they didn't bring their typewriters that they brought didn't have any accent marks. That makes sense. So that's why your name. So what I, what I think is interesting about that is it tells you about the impact of imperialism and the timeline, right? Yeah. So my name under Spanish rule would have been Jose with the accent. Right. But under American rule, there was no accent. So I, I'm, my name is specifically of a, of, a, of a specific time. 
How interesting. So then why are there accents in Mexican names? I don't know. <laughs> They're they typewriters. Because, <laughs> because the Americans take over, you know, um, after after the Spanish conquistadores took over Latin America. Did the Americans take over after them? I don't know. Um, I mean, they took over part of Mexico. And so maybe, I don't remember what year it was. I wasn't there. See, see how deep this is? Yeah. I just, have you seen The Crown? No. This Netflix show, The Crown? Mm-mm. It's like basically like, you know, have you, so it's this interesting show that is about the impact of the burden of duty mm-hmm. to the royal family. So it's like Queen Elizabeth. Okay. <laughs> um, and when I was a kid, I watched like a bunch of PBS shows, like all those gringo shows, right? Because okay. I thought I needed, I needed to sound proper English. And right. so I watched them to learn how to speak English. Yeah. So I have a certain affinity for them. So I'm watching this, you know, The Crown is, a, I guess, the most expensive Netflix show. So I was watching the trailer and it's all about like the duty of how how heavy the crown is mm-hmm. for the royal family to wear. And I keep thinking, wait a sec, pobrecitos. <laughs> and what I'm thinking is, I think we're arriving at a point in history where I actually want, like, the opposite side of this. Mm-hmm. Like, how about the burden of the colonized? Like, how, like, all the anti, all of the colorism, all of the stuff mm-hmm. that we deal with, like, in our culture, because... Spain took over, the America took over, and then we don't know who we are. Right. For, as Filipinos. That's true. I mean, there's there's studies on that, I'm sure. I haven't gotten into those. But I would be really interested in diving deep. There, We do a lot of... Um, I mean, here in the community, in, in the Latinx community in Idaho, we've actually had a lot of um, events and trainings or whatever they're called about how to decolonize ourselves how to decolonize like our futures um and so we have really interesting discussions um about that and so where where does that meet with like you know i feel like a lot of people now are using the terms white supremacy and white nationalism just very kind of it's become so mainstream Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure we're being precise enough when we say those terms like what do we really Mm -hmm. mean Mm -hmm. and then like because i meaning you don't have to be white to be a white nationalist like i see a lot of asian people (laughs) (laughs) that's true a lot of latin people they've really internalized that you know what i mean that like you know in my household actually just a couple of weeks ago i was home visiting my grandmother my grandmother lives with my uncle and my aunt and their two kids and my aunt was applying a cream to the neck of my me of my cousin who's 11 and finally i was like what are you putting in on her neck? Yeah. It's a whitening cream. Yeah. That she bought from a Korean store mm-hmm. downtown. And I was like, what? And my aunt goes, the neck is the place that gets the darkest in her body. Mm-hmm. So she just was not like, I don't want her walking around with that dark neck. Right. So what's so wrong with having a dark neck? <laughs> so it went on from there. And yeah. I'm like... That's white supremacy right there. Yeah, it is. So it's not just something, it's not just Trump. Yeah. Right? No, it's, it's not global. It's ingrained it's global. in our it's culture. It's ingrained in our culture. Mm-hmm. And I think we're missing that kind of nuanced conversation. Yeah. I feel it like is, so much yeah. about race in this country is so black and white. Um, and we're not really dealing with the fact that it's way more complex than that. Yeah, it is. It is a lot more complex. And it's a lot more, um, it's, it's more than just 
us here. It's, it spreads everywhere. I mean, it's, it's in beauty standards. It's in, you know, how we structure businesses. It's, it's everywhere. It's ingrained mm. in every little piece of our lives. Yeah. Anyway, so let's get back to you. Oh. Um, <laughs> what, it, what brings you to Idaho? Um, well, I have been going around the country for the past eight years and haven't been to Idaho all that much. Mm-hmm. And we have, um, we recently hired somebody from Idaho, Nathaniel Hoffman, who has been here since, I think, 2000. Yeah. Uh, he's worked as a journalist, um, very active in the community. And so yes. he was like, hey, let's organize an event in Idaho. This morning, I met with the dairy farmers um, oh. in the dairy farming industry. Um, and, you know, like you have about estimated 45,000 undocumented population in the state of Idaho that we really? know of. I that we know that. of. Um, about 3,000 DACA recipients. So, yeah. I think it's really important, especially in states that are considered more red, yeah. that we bring these conversations about race and immigration and identity to mm-hmm. places like Idaho. Mm-hmm. This is not mm-hmm. something that should just be happening in New York and California and Florida and Texas. Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that's why I'm here. Excellent. We're, we're so excited to have you here. Um, you know, so I, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about things that you wrote in your book, things that you've, you've talked What's about What surprised before. you about the book? And I'm sorry, you're interviewing a journalist, so ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Honestly, I ask questions um, myself. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what surprised me about it because, I mean, I have been doing work, you know, immigrant rights work for a very long time. Um, there were a lot of passages in the book that, I, that really stuck out to me as being... Um, particularly um, well said, I actually wanted to read a piece that I thought that was like, oh my, it really, really stuck out to me. Um, And it really kind of sums up, I think, what what this whole thing is about. Because for you, specifically you, I mean, you're definitely a leader in this movement, but at the same time, you seem more accessible than than a lot of other leaders. And it's because, I mean, I have followed you for a long time and it feels like, you're going through the same things that we are and we're, it feels like we're going through it together. So for example, when, when DACA was introduced, I remember that I celebrated, um, because it's, it was a beautiful thing that for for our listeners who don't know, DACA is, um, deferred action for childhood arrivals. It's if you were brought as a child, um, you know, there, you can apply essentially for just the right to work. And so, um, when DACA was, was introduced, I remember I celebrated because it was, it's, it was, it felt like we got a piece of justice for, um, immigrants who were brought here as children, but I, it was very bittersweet because I had family members who didn't qualify for DACA still. And I know that you, um, you know, you were very vocal too about, it felt like we were going through it together because you said you, you didn't qualify for DACA either, even though you were brought here as a child. Um, you missed the the age limit by like three months, right? Yeah, which is it's so heartbreaking. And I know that there were a lot of other people who were in the exact same boat, and so it was so bittersweet. And it felt like you were right there with us, experiencing the bittersweet pieces of that with us. And then as we go on, I mean, I remember, excuse me, I remember when you were uh, detained in Texas. You yeah. were placed in an immigration hold, um, and I I remember seeing it in the news, and I remember freaking out. <laughs> Excuse me, oh my goodness. <laughs> Is it because I'm here? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, and I mean, and it felt like, you know, that's, you know, it felt kind of like somebody I knew was being detained. And that's a fear that a lot of people have. 
And, um, you know, I just, I remember seeing on the news when, you know, they were kind of, you were handcuffed and they, they took you out of the airport. Um, and I felt like I was, you know, right there with you. And this, this fear of, you know, having your family members deported, or if you're undocumented, the fear of being deported, it's, it's always there. And it, sometimes you forget how real it can be. And so when I saw you get detained, it felt like, oh my gosh, you know, this, this still happens. It still happens to even amazing people. And so you, you talked about that in your book and it feels like we're in this journey together. It feels like we're experiencing it together. Um, and yet you're still very much a leader and a strong voice in this movement. And so there, it felt like, it feels like, especially through this book, which was very raw and powerful through the documentaries. I've actually, um, attended events where you spoke before. Oh, um, I, I, it was several years ago at the end, back when it was the NCLR. Oh yeah. I was like, I was, I I had just gotten, I had just gotten released from detention. I think when I went to that, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and we talked about the, the films that Uh you had made, Uh, you hadn't written the book at that point. No, no, no. So, but I mean, it, it always feels like you're such a strong voice, but you feel more accessible than most I guess, sort of leaders or strong voices. And this book oh. was very much like another way, I think, that somebody can feel connected to you. And you, um, you, so one of the things that I've really noticed in your book, too, is, I mean, it's very raw, it's vulnerable, it's very real. Um, and you talk about everything from, you know, what it felt like to live in the shadows, um, you know, your, your process of kind of coming out feeling guilty that other people had come out as undocumented mm, and, and you not, still had yeah. not yet and how especially as a journalist you you talk about when you were interviewing mark zuckerberg and um you know he, you were trying to get him to open up about his life and the weight of you kind of not being able to open up about your own life you know it fell very heavy on you and you you wore it um throughout that interview and I think it seemed like that was a little bit of a turning point that, oh, got you that was a big turning point for me yeah and so I mean in this book there are several several things that really stuck out to me um, one of the things that really stuck out to me is um, you are very humble throughout this entire journey oh. <laughs> you you take time to you take time to sit and recognize, you know, your own, the privileges that you have had. It's, you know, a lot of people wouldn't think that you've had a lot of privileges, but you do sit and you you are grateful for the privileges you do have. You do recognize that other people may not have those same privileges. You stop and thank the people who have helped you along the way. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily do that. Um, and so, I mean, one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you is how do you you have your feet so firmly planted on the ground. How do you remain so oh. humble after all of these things that you have accomplished and after becoming such a huge voice for us? How do you remain so humble? So mentorship is like sacred to me. Mm. I actually think that's part of the crisis that we're living through is we don't have enough mentors for young people. So that's why in the book, I was very intentional in naming everyone who's ever helped me mm-hmm. because I, if I didn't have them, I don't think I would have had kind of the moral, the moral um, grounding to keep going, mm-hmm. right? Like, because there are so many points that... I, in my career, especially when I was starting out, that 
I'm here illegally. Should I be doing this? I'm, I'm committing fraud. I'm lying to people. I'm breaking a law. Like there were so many points that I had so internalized this idea that I was a criminal. Right. That if I didn't have people in my life who didn't treat me like I was one, I'm not sure I would have allowed myself and given myself permission to do what I was doing. Mm. So that's why I think I can handle so much animosity and hatred and ignorance and just from the left and the right. Yeah. You know, I was very intentional in even pointing out how hard it's been to exist in the immigrant rights movement. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially because I'm I'm a trained journalist. That's kind of what I know to do. And so I didn't really know how to exist as an activist. First of all, Mm -hmm. I never called myself one. So to be labeled activist, advocate, you're now accountable to this community. I'm like, accountable to what community? Right. Right? You mean your movement that's not growing? Because movements grow. Yeah. I don't know about you, but like, I don't see the immigrant rights movement. I don't think we know yet. See, even the fact that I'm using we, am I a part of the immigrant rights movement? I guess I am. When you say I'm a leader, I'm a leader of what? See, I I wouldn't think of myself... I feel like one of my friends said to me recently, he was on me for a while, that it's almost like I'm having like a public meltdown. What? <laughs> Meaning like I'm just constantly showing kind of how vulnerable mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a perfect example of this. So a couple of weeks ago, the book for me, part of, this, part of what's been incredible about the book is how many students are reading it. Mm-hmm. So at Louisiana State University, all the freshmen had to read the book. They were assigned to read the book oh, wow. over the That's summer. That's amazing. It's a lot yeah, of kids great. in Louisiana in a conservative state, mostly white. Right. So they bought a lot of books and my publisher was like, go talk to them. So I did, I did a convocation and then in the middle of this thing, this guy, Duncan, young white guy, gets up in front of everybody and says, Hey, so in the book, you said that um, you asked your mom if she regretted sending you here, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. she gave you an answer about how could I regret it? Look right. how successful you've become. Right. And then he goes, so I want to ask you, like, do you regret being sent here? And since I'm still living this and I'm processing it still, right? right. And it has to be real for me, you know, like... I actually said, and I'd never said it publicly before. I don't think I even articulated it before. I said that I think I would have preferred to have a mom. Mm. That I'm not sure this was worth it. Mm. And I can feel the audience go like, what? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the narrative of, oh, my God, the sacrifices of our parents. Right. Right? We crossed the border for you to be here. We've Right. Mm-hmm. I get that, but from where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. like, no amount of success, no resume, no awards, I think can replace what my relationship with my mother would have been like and what kind of safety that would have given me. Right. Like, my inability to, like, see myself clearly and love myself, mm. I think is directly correlated to the fact that I didn't have her. Yeah. And that my dad, do you know what I mean? I so I said that. And then, and now, of course, one of my friends saw it. I was like, oh my God, now you're really complicating it. Because <laughs> my point is, my mom or any parent, dad, mom, shouldn't have to make this choice. Mm-hmm, true. We should live in a world 
a world where this iPhone that I'm staring at right now can travel to more places than I can as a human being, where mm-hmm. corporations don't need passports, where money, money creates laws. It doesn't follow them. True. Right? So we live at that kind of time. So why can't parents stay where they are? Why can't we actually create a world mm-hmm. where parents don't have to make that choice? Mm-hmm. Right. To risk their lives and their safety and their relationship with their kids just so they can feed them. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a global migration conversation that we should be having. Exactly. Yeah. And I yeah, feel like that's not what That's not at all what people want to have. People think, about. oh, let's pass immigration reform. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Have you talked to black people? Mm-hmm. They're passing the Civil Rights Act. Here we are 50 years later. Does that guarantee full and equal treatment of black people? No. Do we even talk about Native Americans in this country? I mean, the fact that women in this country still earn much less to the man's dollar. What does that tell us? So legislating things, legislating, you can't legislate emotions. Mm-hmm. You can't legislate someone's frame of mind. So for me, like what we're really after here is I'm actually now, because, you know, like so much of my work because I'm a journalist has been factual, right? So documentaries, right. nonfiction book. So I've started gravitating towards fiction. Really? Yeah. So I'm right. I'm in the process, a terrible process, of writing um, a novel uh, based on a woman who leaves her son. Mm. So I'm dramatizing. So my mom put me in a plane. I don't know what happened to her. Yeah. What does she say to herself? Where'd she go? Mm-hmm. What is she like? What? what, right. what did, like? So and I don't know. I really don't know. So it's an act of moral imagination to like try as a woman, I'm not a woman. Mm-hmm. So to try to actually like, you know, in, 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 in English literature, there's like three works, three books that were written in the course of a day of someone's life. Yeah. Like Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, right? Mrs. Dalloway said she would like to buy the flowers herself. Mm-hmm. So it's like a whole day in the life of this woman, Mrs. Dalloway. So I'm writing a, a novel on, based on a woman's life that happens in one day mm-hmm. when she sends her kid away. Mm. Wow. It's really hard. <laughs> I bet. I mean, yeah. especially since you, you're kind of diving into your mother's mind. What, what, what is, how did she do that? What did she say to herself? I have no idea. I don't know either. Have you asked her these questions or you're just kind of... I'm afraid. Yeah. Because then there was... Mm. So but the, the difference between facts and truth... Like if I asked her, then I'll record it, and the journalist in me would be like, what did mm-hmm. she say? How did she say? Was that a comma? Is that a semicolon? Is that a dash? <laughs> How did she pause? How long did she pause? What was she wearing? What was the nails? What was she listening to her Walkman? What did, these are the things that a journalist, I want to know. Mm-hmm. But now I'm like inventing the world, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get at like truth. Right. That's wild. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, but by the way, it may suck. Like, I don't think, actually, I tried it. When I first started doing it, I started writing it in the third person, like, as if I'm just writing about her, uh-huh. but it's a third person and it's not working. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to allow myself to be a she. Oh. So I'm writing as her. So it's working better, but it's still too, I'm still going, because you know, when I'm uncomfortable, I go to what I know. Mm-hmm. So I'm still going through my usual journalistic ticks. Yeah. Right? On the other hand, in contrast, like all the, you know, the transitional phrases that you use. You have a lead in each you have a lead. Here's the transition. Where's the kicker? 
You know, books are different. Novels yeah. are different. I actually, I don't know how much I've reread Mrs. Dalloway now. I literally just like tore it apart. I literally like wow. photocopied it and not just from the book, copied it so I could actually just like, because it's the thing about that book too is it's, it's like one stream of consciousness. There are no chapter breaks. There are no, it just goes, psh. but Virginia Woolf dared to say that there is a novel in one day of a woman's life. Wow. That so much already happens in one day that it's worthy of a novel. Mm-hmm. Wow. So. And one thing I have noticed too in, in, in talking to you and in reading your book, you have this ability to look at yourself and look at your situation and immediately be able to relate it to something bigger. Always, always like, how oh do you God. fit in something like bigger? That's like the biggest compliment ever. <laughs> I've, well, oh, I mean, you did you. it. Well, you're welcome. Um, you know, there's a chapter in that book that I'm really... By the way, the book, <laughs> the original draft was 20,000 words longer. Really? So I cut. I just cut, cut, cut. You know, editing. Editing to me is a lost art in this era when people don't know how to edit themselves. Sure. So I was, for me, a practice... Like, you know, there's a chapter called Mexican Jose, Filipino Jose. Yeah. In which I actually literally explained in two pages <laughs> yeah. the impact of the Na- Immigration Nationality Act and how it allowed... Filipinos like me to come to this country right. and then started criminalizing Mexicans who were coming. Mm-hmm. So my challenge in writing the book was, and you know, Toni Morrison is a huge, huge influence, right? Yeah. And I remembered one of the challenges that she posed, she gave this amazing speech that I listened to over and over again on YouTube. How do you narrate the self without erasing other people? Mm. Wow. You know, social media era is all about I, me, I, me, and my, right? Yeah. So how do you use I, me, and my knowing that you're never the only person in the room, mm-hmm. that your perspective is only one perspective? Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a big, big... And so from an artistic perspective, perspective, mm-hmm. I always challenge myself. So when I was writing this book, I wanted to make sure that I saw myself... Yeah, there's the individual and then the, there's the system. Right. So like, where do I fit in the system? Where The fact that I'm not Latinx and this issue is always seen as a Latinx issue. Right. How do I talk about that? Right. How do I approach this from a sense of, with a sense of humility? Yeah. That's why maybe I don't think of myself. Because even the term leader seems so... It's a term that you don't ever give yourself. Somebody no. else gives it to you. And when, actually, that's a test because when people introduce themselves, I'm a leader. I'm like, oh, okay. yeah, that's true. You're like, okay, okay. That's, oh, I mean, my. What does that mean to you? Yeah. How does that manifest itself beyond the ego? Mm-hmm. We all have egos. We have, we have to. Yeah. Right. But then, like, where where's the balance there? Is is activism a full time job? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, don't know. is it? I don't. I don't. Well. That's a good question. I don't really know the answer to that question. So I don't like calling myself an activist because I think it exonerates everybody else. So why is it that people of color always have to be an activist about our lives and yet most people just get to live theirs? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Shouldn't white people be activists too? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Isn't, isn't, the, is, isn't the very existence of black people in this country was founded on this activism? Mm-hmm. Right, like it was actually written in the Constitution that they were that they were worthy of three fifths of a person, mm-hmm. and so their very existence was already kind of mm-hmm. like, wait a second, no, right. I'm not what you think I am. Mm-hmm. So that's why I find a lot of power in that. I find a lot of power. 
I mean, I wish every day was like Black History Month in this country. Yeah. Because I think every every single person, particularly immigrants who are struggling with our with our with our existence in this country, I think we can look at the experience of Black people in this country and be like, wait. You mentioned in in our prior conversation that the way immigration is covered in media is made solely a Latinx issue. And you've talked to Latinx people who've come up to you and said, like, thank you for telling your story because it shows that we are not the the only only ones who deal with this. Yeah. And so I think like, I think even Latinx people sometimes think that we are the only ones who deal with it. And and I think that's a, a really important point that you make a lot. That Latinx people aren't the only ones who who struggle with these types of issues. And I I, I struggle with this because I don't want to I don't want to minimize the fact that Latinx people are disproportionately impacted by this. Of course. But at the same time, I think something happens internally when we believe that only one group of people are impacted by an issue. Mm-hmm. Then they start believing it. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if, do Latinx people not care about housing, education, income inequality, mm-hmm. healthcare? Mm-hmm. Like, and yet in this country, we always assume that Latinx people care about immigration. It's not the only thing. It's not the only issue. Exactly. And I think the fact, though, that we've racialized this issue to an extent where it's the issue is married to a specific group of people, particularly Mexicans. And given the history of Mexicans in this country, that there were Mexicans who were here before there was the United States of America. I, I don't I don't I don't even really it's hard for me sometimes to think about the kind of trauma that we we've inflicted on on Latin people in this country. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the term illegal is synonymous with Mexicans. Like, what does that do? Like, what does that do to young people mm-hmm. who then start believing it and start to give up before they even try? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wish that there was, that we talked more about mental health. I wish that we talked more about, as much as we talk about laws, I hope that we tell people, remind people that their lives are worth more than laws that haven't even passed. Yeah, and that's something that I, from our previous conversation, a quote from you that really stuck with me is that you want young people to know that they're worth more than pieces of paper and laws that haven't passed and, like, conversations going on, like, thousands of miles away. Because how do you live your life like that? Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you because I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I couldn't give myself permission to think of myself and my life as not being defined by quote-unquote immigration reform or not being dictated by the passport and the green cards that I don't have. And yet my life, you know, I only get older. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't, go, I don't go backwards. So then how do I live my life knowing that I have permission to live it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I don't need a government to tell me that I'm not a criminal because mm-hmm. I know that I'm not, yeah. right? That I'm actually, that I should actually allow myself to live a life and allow joy and um and 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 live it unapologetically mm-hmm. um so and again that's just somebody from someone i'm a 38 year old i'm not even a young adult i'm just an adult adult mm-hmm. so i worry because i meet so many young people who I, when i meet them i can tell already that they've 
surrender to this narrative that their lives are limited. Mm-hmm. That's not what America is for. This country was not built so that you can live your life, you know, mm-hmm. with limitations. Mm-hmm. Like the whole country's, the whole idea was we're supposed to force ourselves to be as free mm-hmm. as an individual can. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the mental health aspect because I know you've talked about being constantly like anxious before you came out, constantly anxious about not belonging or that people will find out. Could you talk about the weight that that has on like such a young life and and how many people in Idaho, many young people in Idaho might be having that same weight over themselves? Well... (laughs) You know, so I was basically living in like two closets for the, there was a year in my life where I was in the closet by being undocumented and being gay. And because thankfully I was growing up, you know, near San Francisco in a pretty progressive place, I felt comfortable coming out as gay. So one closet out, one more to go. <laughs> and anybody who has ever lived in a closet can tell you that it's very like, a, it's a closet. It's a dark, isolating, contained space. So it's been eight years since I came out of the second closet, the immigration closet, and I'm still trying to understand what freedom that has afforded me. You know, there's this great quote by Toni Morrison, um, freeing yourself is one thing, taking ownership of that free self is another matter. So I'm in the second part of the quote. Like, how do I take ownership of what I, of kind of this freedom that I have now of knowing that, yeah, they can arrest me anytime. They can try to deport me, but they're never going to be able to, they can't get in my head anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not allowing that to happen anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Which means I have power over it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That, that's where real freedom comes from. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a privileged place to be able to gotten to that point. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the very function of freedom, Toni Morrison says, is to free someone else. So how can I talk about myself freely and hopefully that in itself can free other people Mm -hmm. in whatever way they need to be Mm -hmm. freed. I would, and again, this is coming from a journalist who happens to be undocumented. And and I may not be, for example, the whole novel writing thing, I'm still figuring that out. So I I may not be a good novelist, but I'm a really good reporter. I know this because... I'm fastidious when it comes to like, what do I not know? And I can tell you after eight years and more more than 1,700 events in 49 states, including interviewing the Dairy Farmers Association this morning here in Idaho, (laughs) in Boise, that most people have no idea what this is. That whatever legislation is up for, it's coming, it's based on limited knowledge. That's true. They don't know the billions of dollars that we pay to the government, no. right? I mean, we, we could sue the government for taxation without representation, right? Yeah. They don't know that the fastest growing and documented population are not coming from Latin America and Central America. It's coming from Asia. Mm-hmm. They don't know about all the undocumented white people and black people. They don't know that 40% of the undocumented population overstayed their visa and didn't cross the border. So we're, we're operating from a limited point of view. And not only that, very politically charged point of view, in which Fox News will tell you something, MSNBC will tell you something else. So meaning, for us at the Fine American, telling stories at 
all levels, in all mediums, may it be a podcast, may it be a television show like Grey's Anatomy or Roswell or Superstore, may it be a news article that you read or an essay that you that you see on Christianity Today. All of that is needed. All of those stories are needed to change and impact the immigrant narrative in this country. And not only that, we believe in the immigrant migrant narrative. Because for me, I don't know if you, if you notice this in the book, the book is partly dedicated to the 258 million migrants in the world. Mm-hmm. This is a global issue. Right. And I think that's something too that I think is really, really important to tell young people that what is happening to them here in this country is related to happening to everybody else in the world. Mm-hmm. And that the thing that we haven't figured out is I would argue that we have not come up with language, with real vocabulary that is based on people's lives that should dictate what policies and politics should be when it comes to this issue. Mm-hmm. Politics are leading, are shaping policies that aren't based on people's lives. Right? So we, you have 45,000 undocumented people in the state of Idaho. Is there a subway system here that I don't know about? So no. how do undocumented people in Idaho drive? They, they, they drive. Allegedly don't. But of course they do. Mm-hmm. Of course they do. Because they drop the kids off to school, mm-hmm. they go to the store, go to work. They go to work. So every time they go to work, they're risking their lives mm-hmm. just so they can go to work mm-hmm. and pay taxes to the very government that seeks to detain and deport them. Mm-hmm. So what what would a solution look like? Part of the solution for me, in the same way that the LGBT rights movement changed household by household, right? That took real conversations among kids who know gay people, who told their parents, mm-hmm. who then introduced. So meaning, what? how are you going to engage all your relatives and your coworkers and your friends and what this issue is? Clearly, if, if education is not happening from the mainstream news media, mm-hmm. although, of course, that's one way, right? where else can it happen? So at Define American, you know, Thanksgiving is around the corner. So we have this thing called the Gift Guide to Uncomfortable Conversations that you can download from our website. Mm-hmm. It's a PDF. It actually shares with you step by step how do you talk to your relatives? How do you not mm-hmm. walk away when your uncle, your aunt, or your grandparents says something bad about those illegals? Mm-hmm. We also have on our website actually a PDF called The Game of Getting Legal. Literally, the number one question I get asked, no matter people who want me mm-hmm. deported or people who want me to stay, are, can't you just go fix this thing? Can't you just get legal? Isn't that incredible? Mm-hmm. As much as we talk about this issue, people don't understand the very process exactly. of the issue. Right. So we actually give people this PDF that explains to you why is it that you have 11 million people in this country that can't quote unquote legalize mm-hmm. their status. Right. So information. And I think that information and education has to happen person by person by person. Yeah. That, that's not as sexy as saying, you know, go to a protest, right? Fill out a performer or a petition. But that's not going to be enough. I think it's actual. We are in the middle of a culture war. Yeah. Right? Like it's literally what we're in the middle of. And all of us need to be soldiers in the way we tell our stories mm-hmm. and the way we, we change people's minds. Since I was a kid, I had internalized that I had to earn America. Right. Every single immigration reform bill contains this phrase, earned citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I believed it. I believed it to the point where I'm going to win all the awards I possibly can. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And that will be enough. And so I've gotten to this habit of asking American citizens how they earned their citizenship. 
And actually, I just did that today with the dairy farmers. You know, I asked them at the end of the at the end of the conversation. I said, "How many of you, U.S. citizens?" Everybody raised their hands. How'd you get it? Oh, you're born here. <laughs> Is that it? The accident of birth. So wait. The luck of the draw is that you were born in this country at the right t- at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so now, that very random thing, so now you're going to project onto us earning something that you never even had to earn yourself. That's right. And they're so, they're, we Americans, <laughs> sorry. Right? We're so entitled. We act so entitled too. Not only do we put that on immigrants, that you have to earn your place in my space, you know, but it never dawns on us that we did nothing to earn that space. And we don't know why we're entitled to it, but we are so entitled. But I actually think, well, this is why, I don't know if you noticed, but the title is, you know, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Citizen is underlined. That's right. I actually think that to me is the conversation. Like, what do we share? Mm-hmm. Like, how do I how do I sit in a room fully knowing that I'm enough, right? That, that I am enough for myself. But I'm never the only person in the room. To me, that's what citizenship is. Like, we actually have something at stake, which is each other. I, I believe that firmly. If I didn't, I would have already left. That's beautiful. And on that note, I think we will um, go ahead and unfortunately say goodbye oh, yeah. to you on this podcast. I'm honored to be the first non-Latinx you know, non person are. to be interviewed. Yeah. Thank you for that. So kudos to all the 4 million Filipinos in the United States. Right. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> Thank you so much again. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is Thank definitely you. the most starstruck I've ever been. Oh, gosh. For our podcast. <laughs> All right. So um, thank you to everybody who listened to this podcast. Um, Thanks again to Jose Antonio Vargas for being here. Um, Thanks, Rachel, for helping me out on this podcast. It was been a pleasure. Um, And if you want to continue to follow us on um, Twitter, you can follow us at The Latino Card. We have a Facebook account at The Latino Card. Um, If you want to uh, talk to us on social media, you can. If you're old school, you can email us at latinocardidaho at gmail.com. And uh, we will see you all in the next podcast.